Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, and I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. Dear 20-something started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful woman they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts we process internally, Dear 20-something is a space where listeners can hear insights, ask questions, and ultimately get advice from the woman they most admire. Today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Sarah Moray. Sarah Moray is the founder and CEO of Curie, a personal care brand that makes clean and effective products for humans in motion. Sarah started her career in venture capital, which meant investing in early stage startups. Many of these startups were wellness-based, which got Sarah curious about clean beauty. Like most good ideas, Curie was born out of a personal need, as Sarah struggled to find natural personal care products that were both non-toxic and effective. When she realized this was a struggle for others as well, she bootstrapped the brand on 12K savings, and within six months was hitting six-figure revenues with zero marketing budget, which is unheard of. I'll just chime in there. The brand has grown from one cult favorite natural deodorant to four SKUs and is sold in stores nationwide. Prior to founding Curie, Sarah worked in venture capital for five years in seed stage startups in the Bay Area and LA. I can't wait to chat with her and share her story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Sarah Murray. Hi, that was a great bio. Can I use that for my website? <laughs> Absolutely. I'll send it over when we're done. That was so well written and summed it up perfectly. I love it. Yeah, it's so great to read your story and I'm so excited to dive in. Before we get into the details, though, we do like to start our show with a little light question to kick things off. So what is something new that you learned in this past week? It could be maybe like a book you read that you love, maybe a stat about clean beauty if we want to go really on brand. TV show you're loving, whatever it can be, something new you learned this past week. Oh my gosh. Well, we aired on Shark Tank last week, I think nine days now since we aired on Shark Tank. And this past week has been, I have been buried in customer service emails. We're sold out of our products. So trying to get back in stock. So I have not watched any TV, read any books or done anything for myself in the past week. I think the main thing I've learned is I probably should have ordered more inventory before we aired on Shark Tank. So that's been my big learning for the week. I will say that's probably one of the best ones we've gotten so far and really not a bad problem to have, you know, just I'm so sorry. We're so sold out and we did so well. I know. I just posted a TikTok about this because I'm like people's reaction when we say we sold out is like, wow, congratulations. Like, that's amazing. And as a business owner, you're like, yeah, but it's also a terrible thing because then we have subscribers that have subscriptions that we have to figure out how to get them their products. We're scrambling to get more inventory and you know, paying rush delivery costs. So anytime you see a business that you love that's out of stock, be patient, be kind, because behind the scenes, they are scrambling. It's a very stressful problem. That's such a great point. And it's also like unrealized revenue that can keep you up at night when you're like, oh my God, I could have had another thousand orders. Like separate from all of the ripple effects, it's like, okay, so there were 2000 people that came to my site when it said sold out and all they could do was give me their email. Like that also is a thing. Exactly. We have thousands of people on a wait list now, which is awesome. 
But I'm like, what if they don't actually purchase when we come back into stock? Like, what if they're no longer interested? What if they went and bought another deodorant? So all these things, it's really exciting that the response was so positive. But on the other hand, it is very stressful. And that is why this past week has been just work, work, work. I've been up like burning the midnight oil, but it's also just been so exciting. So I cannot complain. Well, big congratulations. Separate from some of the stressors that come after it, it's a huge deal. And I will say, I did watch your Shark Tank episode. You were so impressive. And I'll just give a little quick sneak peek. She ended up getting a deal with Mark and Barbara. So that's also insane. Two sharks, one deal. What was like now that you're, I guess you're maybe you're only nine days out, but when you look back on that experience, is there something that you're like, oh my gosh, this was like the greatest takeaway? Or is there something that you feel like, I think a lot of our listeners want to be on Shark Tank one day as a judge or as someone who's on. So yeah, what was like greatest takeaway? Yeah, there were a few. I'm big on journaling. So I came home from filming. I filmed Shark Tank, even though it just aired, I filmed in September. And after I filmed, I came home and I think I immediately went to bed. But the very next morning, (laughs) I sat down and I journaled the whole experience and like really reflected on it. I think I wrote like six pages and I'm so glad that I did that when it was fresh in my head. I ended up turning it into a blog post and posting it on our website. And I'm so glad I did that because there were so many like broad lessons that anyone can apply. I'll just name a few. Like the fact that I, if you watched the episode, you saw that I was a standby company. So I wasn't even supposed to be on the season. It was, I was a standby, which is essentially like an understudy in a play. Like if there's time, we'll give you a call. I live in LA, the studio's in LA. And so they're like, we'll give you a call if we have extra time to film. But there was a chance that I wasn't going to get on this season. That was a huge challenge. Like having to really prepare for something and put your all into it and have there be a chance that you might not get to even film, let alone get aired. Not every company gets aired. was really difficult mentally. And so this is a, a very like kind of cheesy quote. Luck is when preparation meets opportunity. This was a great real life example of that. I, even though it wasn't guaranteed, I prepared like an athlete going to the Olympics. Like I was a crazy person leading up to filming Shark Tank. I watched episodes. I did tons of research. I practiced again and again and again and again. I didn't drink alcohol because I was like, I need my brain to be at max capacity. Basically, I had no social life the month leading up to potentially being on the show. And then I got my opportunity and I took full advantage of it. I watched that episode and I'm so proud of myself. I killed it. You so did. And I'm so proud because I truly prepared, put my whole heart into it. And once that opportunity came about, once I got the call that they had an extra slot, I rose to the occasion and it's been a huge, huge thing for myself personally and my business. So I think that's a good learning is like, Just prepare, always be prepared, put your heart into things. You're going to potentially be disappointed. But once those opportunities come about, you want to be prepared. And I'm really glad that I like put my all into it instead of being like, "Eh, I might not get to be on. So I'm going to half-ass it. Like, no, I acted as if I was definitely going on the show and it really paid off. Yeah. And you know, we talk about opportunity, but I would argue this would be a life-changing opportunity. Those don't come around all the time. You know, those really don't come around. And so 
even this idea that like, if there's a slim chance that you have a life-changing opportunity in front of you, even if it's like a job that like said, well, we're willing to give you an interview, you know, like whatever the thing is, if it's giving a talk to people you are impressed by, like if that life-changing opportunity, there's a slim chance you have got to over-prepare and do your absolute best. Cause like you said, now you're looking back and you're like, you know what? Even if I walked away without a deal, like I know I killed it. And quite frankly, like there was nothing more I could have done. And that's how you want to leave these like life-changing opportunities. Otherwise it just can eat you up inside. Yeah. I just got the chills. I'm like, if it's a potential life-changing opportunity, like treat it like that. I love that. And I think also your comment about journaling is so powerful and so important because while yes, in the moment you're reflecting on those things that you learned, you can look back on that years from now and you can always have that like fresh in your mind. There's like some crazy stat where it's like, if you don't write something down, like you'll only remember 5% of what happens or something crazy. And it's like, and when you have those life-changing moments, savor them. Like that's the good stuff in life, you know? Yeah, I didn't want to forget it. Exactly. I was like, I got home from filming and I was just on cloud nine, glowing, couldn't be happier. I felt like a superhero. Like I was so, so, so happy. I went in without really any expectations in terms of would I get a deal? Would I not get a deal? I was realistic with myself knowing, you know, we're a clean body care brand, sells deodorant. It's a competitive space. I didn't invent anything. I don't have a patent or anything. And if you've watched Shark Tank, that's usually a really important thing for them. So I went into it kind of realistic, being like, there's a good chance I won't get a deal. This might not be the best Shark Tank company, but I'm going to try my best. And worst case, like I get a great commercial out of it. So I was really realistic going in and then coming out. Not only like did I get a deal, I got a deal with Mark Cuban, who is like a legend. Got a deal with Mark Cuban, Barbara Corcoran, two of my favorite sharks. And I was just on cloud nine and I never, ever, ever want to forget this feeling. Like I wish I could bottle this feeling up and like share it with the world. And that was that blog post to me. It was just like sharing that joy and sharing how I felt in every moment of that day. And I will definitely look on, read back on that blog post and that journal entry when I'm old and my kids will read it one day. So I am a huge, huge proponent. Like I encourage anyone to journal, especially if you're going through a really exciting time in your life, because you're not going to want to forget that. Yeah. And if you're going through not so good time, good to work through it. But journaling is the best. Absolutely. Oh my God. Every breakup I've ever gone through, it's like journaling. That is my self-therapy. Like I have, my journal is actually right here in front of me. Like this thing is full of secrets full of good, bad, every moment in between. And it's so therapeutic, but also great. You know, you want to reflect and look back on things. Sometimes pictures don't always tell the whole story. Yeah. The breakup stuff, maybe we don't reread that. (laughs) Let's reread the Shark Tank pieces, not the breakup pieces. But yeah, I'm so excited for you. And, And Mark and Barbara are awesome. And I will say too, obviously, you know, they do go for a lot of those patent type you know, companies, but they also go for rock stars. And I think that was something that we saw with Sabina, which we were talking about before we started the show. You know, Sabina's a past guest of ours. She started Doe, the, you know, good for you cookie dough company. It's a friend of Sarah's. And she, I think similarly, like, yes, she did create something, you know, great with the cookie dough, but she came off as really just a rock star. And I think you similarly, just like, quite frankly, like we really believe that this deodorant's going to work out. But if it doesn't, Sarah's going to work out. You know what I mean? Like she's going to do well. And whether it's this product or she's to pivot to the next or she starts a new company, like they kind of were like, it's more a bet on you, I think. And I think that's something they look for. It's a bet on you. Yeah. And Mark said that during the episode, he was just like, she's a rock star. I want to invest in her. And then at the end, at the very end, after I accepted the deal, 
you can hear him like there's subtitles and you can hear him kind of saying under his breath, like, I never thought I would be investing in a female de- a women's deodorant company, but here we are. And that's just a testament to, you know, that is really a big piece of investing or especially early stage is you're betting on a person, not necessarily an idea. And if that idea doesn't work out, that person is likely to come up with another one. So absolutely. And so interesting you say that that's what early stage is because you also have experience with that doing your venture stuff. So we'll dive into that a little bit, but you know what it's like. You were a shark and now you were the sharky or whatever the other side of the shark is. Well, thank you for diving into that. I think that's obviously so exciting and we want to celebrate that and it just happened. So it's important to even have you listen back to these little clips years from now when you can say, oh my gosh, I was so excited. It was such a big time. All right. So we're going to take it back to when you were younger. Obviously now you have really pursued a career in business. You talked about how you were a CPA, then you were in venture and now you're doing the startup thing. Did you always know you wanted to do business? Did you think that was the path for you? And like, what were your thoughts when you were younger and you were thinking about your career growing up? It was definitely a journey getting here. I'll kind of give the short long backstory. But I was in college, I went to Boston University, studied business undergrad, I was really good at my finance and accounting classes, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. But I've always been very, very career motivated. Like my mom, it would drive her crazy, because I'd be like, a freshman in college, and I'd be like, what am I gonna do with my life? And she'd be like, Sarah, just enjoy college, you'll figure it out. I've always been really career motivated and also a planner. So I always like in college was like, what am I going to major in? And then what's my first job going to be? And then where's that going to lead me? And then da, 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 da. So in college, I was really good at finance and accounting. I went to BU on the East Coast. So there was a big focus on like investment banking and consulting and all of that. And so I kind of wish that I had more exposure to startups because I think I probably would have landed in the position I'm in a little bit earlier, but everything happens for a reason. And I think my journey now in hindsight totally makes sense. I graduated college, got my CPA license, certified public accountant, worked for a big four accounting firm, hated it, like absolutely hated it. But of course, it gave me a really great foundation in finance and also just like taught me really great work ethic. As an auditor, you're working crazy, crazy, crazy hours. And so that kind of got that. I had a really good work ethic and I had a good foundation in finance and accounting, which is very important as a startup founder. Knew I didn't want to do it forever. I was always, you know, looking at my bosses thinking, I don't want that. That doesn't look fun. And so I knew I was kind of climbing the wrong hill, but I didn't know what hill I wanted to be on instead. And that was a pretty long journey to get there to figure out what that was. I've always been a tinkerer. I've always had a journal full of business ideas. You know, I used to watch Shark Tank with my mom and be like, I want to do that. And I remember I actually had a magazine cutout of an article about Sarah Blakely in college that I had like kept because I was like, Sarah Blakely is founder of Spanx. And she was kind of like my idol. I think she's everyone's. She's unbelievable. Oh, I love her. I love her. So I definitely looked up to her and was like, I want to do that. I want to do that. But couldn't really figure out how do I get from here as a as an auditor to there as an entrepreneur. It just seemed like such a huge leap. And I think also dealing with some like self-limiting beliefs where I was like, why me? Why could I? I wouldn't be able to do that. Like Sarah Blakely must be some special breed of human, like that could never be me. So I think an important step career-wise between being an auditor, being a CPA, and being an entrepreneur was the four years that I spent working in venture capital. 
was a very important stepping stone to entrepreneurship because I got a job at a venture capital firm that was growing. We had just, you know, had this huge exit. We're investing in these Silicon Valley startups and got a job there doing back office accounting for them. And then eventually worked my way onto the investing team. I just started showing up at pitch meetings. I talked about this on Shark Tank. I started showing up at pitch meetings and started raising my hand, offering to do diligence on deals. If anyone's not familiar with what venture capital is, it's basically kind of like being a shark on Shark Tank. You invest in early stage companies at the very, very early stages. And my job when I eventually got onto the investing team was to help find those companies and do diligence, which is basically research on those companies and decide if we wanted to invest. I met with hundreds of startup companies, startup founders, eventually went to another fund down in LA where we were more focused on consumer and met with hundreds of founders. And I think that was an important step because meeting with all these entrepreneurs made me realize like there isn't anything special per se. Like these are not like super geniuses. A lot of times it's just a person with an idea and the guts to do it. That's really all it takes to be an entrepreneur. And I think working in venture capital kind of pulled back the curtain for me and let me see that like, hey, like I can do this. There's no reason that I can't do this. And that was an important stepping stone in my career was getting that exposure associated a venture capital fund, getting the confidence, and then eventually, you know, coming up with the idea and going for it. Unbelievable. It's such a cool journey. And like you said, in hindsight, it makes perfect sense. But when you're going through it, it's not so easy. So, and thank you for that overview. That's super helpful. And obviously that really was like throughout your 20s. And I know you started Curie like late 20s, early 30s. So you had all of these awesome jobs and experiences along the way. So maybe we'll start with the auditing piece and we'll kind of go through that way. So you're in business school at undergrad business school at Boston. And At that point, you're like enjoying your finance classes, enjoying your accounting classes. What makes you think accounting? Just, I'm good at this and they're recruiting heavily on my campus. Or what makes you think accounting is going to be the right fit? Yeah, it's the latter. It was, I'm good at this. I had really good grades in all of my accounting classes. They were recruiting heavily at BU. I had a professor who was really good friends with a partner at a big four accounting firm. And he was like, hey, Sarah, like, this is a great kind of launch pad. You know, having this on your resume is getting a CPA license is really, really challenging. And so he's like, it's great credibility. It's a great, if I were graduating, this is what I would do. I was definitely a little bit influenced by that. I also think like, and again, reflecting back on where my mind was at, I think that in that stage, in my early 20s, I was kind of doing things. I was less of a risk taker than I am now. And I wanted safe. Like I wanted to guarantee that I was going to get a good paying job out of college. And so I wish that Sarah 15 years ago had been a little bit more adventurous and not such a planner. Like I look back, I'm like, why did I feel like I had to plan, have my life all figured out? Like, why didn't I go take a year or two off and like do some soul searching and go travel? I graduated college in May, spent the whole summer studying for the CPA exam, taking the CPA exam. There's four parts to it. Taking the CPA exam all summer long. And then boom, started at PricewaterhouseCoopers in September and just have worked ever since and have never taken a time off. 
And I'm like, I, sh- I was just really, really wanted that career to start. I wanted my life to start. And I didn't really think about, hey, Sarah, like, is this something I hate using the word like passionate? Because I don't think you have to pursue a career that you're passionate about. If I if I pursued something I, would, I was passionate about, I probably would be like a pastry chef or something like that. But I don't think you have to be passionate about something, but I think you should be interested. It should be whatever career you, you pursue, at least be interested and make it something that you're always reading about. You know, with the Sarah Blakely Spanx article, like I used to read business, whatever, Insider, whatever magazines that they would had on my campus. I used to read about entrepreneurs and business startups. And I should have like taken that as like, hey, Maybe this is a good direction, a good path for you. Again, everything happens for a reason. This is just mainly to to give people advice that might be thinking about what they want to do with their lives. Like a great starting place is like, what are you really interested in? What do you read about on your free time? I love that advice. And I think not enough people say it. It's like, because that's the stuff when no one's looking and you're not posting it on LinkedIn and you're not trying to like impress anyone. That's the stuff that you actually really enjoy. You know, I have a cousin, he loves, loves to cook. He's like an amazing chef. And of course, he's pursuing a different career path. But I'm like, you love cooking more than the average person. And this is a passion. Like, think about it. You're interested. And I think that's such great advice. Like, if you're looking at Sarah Blakely and she's an idol, if you're looking at startups, maybe think about entrepreneurship. But it sounds like the CPA was a great foundation for you. And I'm sure now your finances are all in order. And it gave maybe Mark and Barbara the extra confidence. Like, that stuff should be all lined up. And so you never know how it's going to help. Exactly. No, I'm I'm so grateful for every step in the journey, even all the zigzags and everything, because I do have a great skill set that now it makes a lot of sense looking back. Getting my CPA license and having that experience of crossing T's and dotting I's, I'm meticulous, I'm detail oriented, and I'm good at, you know, I can balance my own books. <laughs> and you know, I can, I know how to manage finance, I know how to build a financial model. And then the venture side, you know, that gave me the confidence and the exposure to entrepreneurship. It also showed me entrepreneurs at work and what was working, what wasn't working, how to do things and how not to do things. And so it all makes sense looking back. It's all like, oh, this beautiful journey. But along the way, like I was definitely lost for a long time, especially during my years in accounting, where I was like, what am I going to do? Like, I don't want to do this. But how do I get out? And I remember I was applying for jobs. This is before venture capital. This was like very early in my career. I was like, I need to get out of here. I remember applying for jobs at startups because again, I was like, I I like startups. Like that sounds fun. But then I kept getting pigeonholed into accounting. Like people, I would apply for a role at a startup and they'd be like, yeah, we're hiring an accounting manager. And I'd be like, ugh, I don't want to do accounting. Like that's why I'm leaving. And so I was super frustrated and felt a little lost for a couple of years because I was like, this isn't it. Like this ain't it. But I, I don't know how to make that jump into something else. I feel like I'll be stuck in accounting forever. Like what have I done? And there were many years that I felt that way. 
That's so interesting to hear you say that because when we typically think of startups, we think, oh, you touch everything. If you're the finance person, you're doing the accounting for this, you're doing the budgeting for the marketing, you're doing, but it sounds like it was a little bit more pigeonholed. What about venture? Or maybe it was just this one job specifically was the thing that made you make that jump. And maybe was it a promise that you would see more? Maybe was it like, what was that thing that you finally said, okay, this is the next step and it is breaking out of accounting in whatever way you wanted to? So I learned what venture capital was by, again, follow your interests. Like, what are you reading about? I was following TechCrunch and that led me to all these blogs. I don't think they do it anymore. Like blogging is not as common in venture, but at the time, a lot of top VCs had blogs. So like Ben Horowitz from Andreessen Horowitz had a really popular blog. Bill Graham, I think, had a blog. All these VCs had blogs and they were talking about venture capital and entrepreneurship and startups. And I somehow stumbled upon these blogs and I would read them religiously. And it was just so exciting to me, like being a venture capitalist, like you have the opportunity to find like the future Google or the future Facebook and see it grow and spot these opportunities and trends. And it was so exciting to me. So I was like, I want to do that. I was still in Boston at the time. So I was like, I need to move to Silicon Valley. And I need to go work for one of these venture capital funds. And so I actually found a recruiter in San Francisco and was like, hey, I want to work at a venture capital fund. I'll take whatever job I can get. It's very, very hard to get an investing role at a venture capital fund. So I was realistic with myself and was like, I'm probably not going to get an investing role. But I think like if I can just get my foot in the door, I'll find a way to get on the investing side. That was my plan. (laughs) It ended up working out. It worked. Good planning. Good planning. It's definitely not the norm to go from back office accounting to investor. But I was really motivated. And that was my plan. I think I just, you know, I manifested it. I was like, I'm going to move to San Francisco. I'm going to get a job at a venture capital fund. I'm going to impress them. And they're going to want me on the investing team. And that's what's going to happen. And I did it. I flew to San Francisco, interviewed, ended up getting a job at a venture capital fund called Formation 8, which had just invested in Oculus. And Oculus was acquired by Facebook. So that's how venture capital funds make money is by investing in a startup and then it either IPOs or gets acquired. And so the fact that Oculus got acquired by Facebook was a huge deal. The fund was on fire. We were so this hot new venture capital fund. And I ended up getting a job as like finance and accounting manager. And I, again, put my all into like the whole, that quote that I butchered, luck is when whatever meets opportunity. Yeah, preparation (laughs) Preparation meets opportunity. opportunity. Yeah. I had prepared. I had read for years these venture capital blogs and done research and read case studies on startups. And so I was prepared and I went in, did the job that I was hired for, even though it wasn't exactly the job I wanted, and then just started trying to insert myself into the investing meetings, raising my hand, being like, hey, I'll help, you know, analyze this company's financial model. Like I know how to do that. And eventually the partners like recognized that. And I ended up getting to work as an associate at a venture capital fund. It worked out. It's unbelievable. I think it's tenacity, you know, and like you said, you know, I wish I wasn't such a planner, but like I'm hearing you now. I'm like, you know what? Your planning paid off because like you knew that you could weasel your way in. So 
Yeah, maybe you say like at times my planning was a little too, you know, rigid or whatever, but like your planning has led to your success. And like definitely I think you seeing that and manifesting it was so, so huge. And like you said, venture's not easy to break in in your 20s. I actually am jumping over to venture capital myself. <gasps> no way! That's so exciting! To anybody listening, getting a job in venture capital is so hard. It's every graduate from Stanford and Harvard, every genius out there is wants to work in venture capital. So you're competing against some of the smartest people. And there aren't that many roles. There's not that many venture capital funds. There's not that many junior level roles within a venture capital fund. So Erica, the fact that you got a role at a venture capital fund, like huge congrats. Like that's such a big deal. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I also think that, you know, being a woman in VC is like a whole other topic. Like I think for me, and this is why I have the show and why I'm so excited to chat with you is just there's no woman in venture at all. So I think even separate from the fact that it's, you know, it's there's not many spots when you're younger. It's also like, it just swayed to women doing it. There's not that many women. It's a boys club. So we'll chat more offline, but that's why I'm also especially excited about your story and all that you've done because you've pursued this venture path. And, you know, it sounds like a dream job to a lot of people. Oh my gosh, like I just get to talk to startups all day long. So I'd love to hear from you, like, how was the associate position? You know, and the associate position is the investing team. So she was doing the accounting stuff and then she switched over to like the dream role, associate at a VC fund. Was it everything that it was cracked up to be? How did you like it? Oh, it was so fun. I was, again, with the journaling, I had a journal throughout the whole thing and was, those were some of the happiest years of my 20s. Like I was thriving. I was doing something I was passionate about. I was surrounded by people that were passionate about what they did, which is important to me. Being around people that love what they do is like infectious and definitely made me workaholic for a little while, but I loved every second of it. I absolutely loved working in venture capital. It's a very intellectually stimulating job. I was always getting, you basically, this is like the day in the life of a associate at a venture capital fund. You meet with founders like, all day, you're like meeting with founders in person or on phone calls, learning about their big ideas and their businesses, asking them questions. And then the startups that you like, that you think have potential, let's say it's a, there's a water bottle in front of me. So water bottle company. And you're like, wow, that's a great idea. It's this biodegradable water bottle. It's going to save the world. Then you spend the rest of your day researching that industry and you get to talk to people in the industry, ask them all the questions about the industry, get to like dive in on the numbers. It was so fun. It was such a great fit for what I love to do, which is like learn about new things and talk to people. So yes, it was an amazing, amazing job. I did that for four years at Formation 8 and then eventually at Crosscut Ventures down here in LA. It was a blast, but I think eventually, I think the only downside to it was you would invest in it. You'd do all this research, really dig in, get excited. Then your fund would end up investing or maybe not investing, but hopefully investing. And then you'd kind of move on to finding the next one. And so it was, you never really got to like sink your teeth into something. It was always finding the next deal, finding the next company, the next big thing. And so after a couple of years, I was like, I really want to sink my teeth into something and build something. And the idea for Curie came about because I was, like you said, there's not that many emails in venture capital. And so 
a lot of the startups with a female demographic would come pitch me because they'd be like, oh, Sarah is a female. She'll get it. You know, we're starting a clean makeup brand. Clean was still kind of new. This was 2016, 2017. Clean was like a totally brand new category. There were lots of clean beauty brands and wellness brands like popping up left and right. And they would come and pitch me because I was their target demographic and they knew I would get it. And so that's kind of how I fell into this space. It wasn't necessarily something I was like always passionate about. I think I used to use like drugstore products like makeup, Maybelline and stuff like that. MAC makeup and Aveeno lotion. I never really cared or paid attention. I never paid attention. And then these companies started pitching me and telling me all this stuff like toxic ingredients that are in these products. And I started to do research on them and was like, oh my God, like, I can't believe that they're putting like petroleum in my lotion, like that I'm putting on my skin every day. And your skin really does absorb like what you put onto it. Holy crap. And so I started to make the switch to clean products and be like a pretty crazy person about what I put on my body. And that was, I tried aluminum free deodorant. It didn't work for me. I tried everything. I smelled so bad. And (laughs) talking to other people, like had the same complaint about aluminum free deodorant. And so that was kind of how the idea for Curie was born. That's unreal. It's so funny you say that, you know, you got exposure to this whole clean beauty world because you were in venture. I think it happens for everyone differently. Sometimes it's like a girlfriend who's really passionate about it that tells you about it. Sometimes you become a mom and you're like, oh my gosh, now I care more about my baby than I even did about myself. Everyone has that moment. And I think that it's so cool that yours happened in venture because you were being exposed to all these things and that this problem kind of landed in your lap. I will speak from personal experience as well. The aluminum-free deodorants do not work. And as someone who Our wants size. to be doing natural stuff, I know. Well, I'm so excited to try it. I unfortunately have not yet tried it, but I will be definitely trying it. Well, unfortunately, we're out of stock right now. But once we're back in stock, I will send it to you. Yes, I will be patient. Yeah. And then my thing was like, I wanted to start really the like big idea was like, there's a lot of people like me that want to use better products, but like, I'm not going to like make a sacrifice. (laughs) I'm not going to use aluminum free deodorant and smell all the time just because it's like better for me. Like I don't care that much. I would have, I kept just going back to antiperspirant because I was like, this stuff doesn't work for me. And so that is who a lot of our customers are. They're people like me that want to use better products, safer products, but like, we're not going to make a sacrifice. We're not going to walk around smelling all day or like using a natural toothpaste that doesn't, clean your teeth and make your breath smell fresh. Like we're not going to use these clean natural products and make a sacrifice. They need to work. And I also am an athlete. I'm a marathon runner. I was like, I need products that can keep up. And so that was the original idea with Curie is like clean personal care products that actually work focus first and foremost on efficacy. And that meant I wasn't going to make try making deodorant in my kitchen. That's like how so many of the brands that we were competing against started as someone like tinkering in their kitchen and and it showed they didn't work. So I instead did some research, found a chemist that had formulated a bunch of personal care products for huge companies and brands and hired him to create our formula. And that I think is kind of been the, the way I've built the brand. It's like, I know what I don't know. I'm going to hire people that are really great at what they do. And we're going to make the best natural deodorant out there. But you also know all the steps you need to take for the most part because of your background experience. You know, like, you know, when you saw these early seed stage, whatever, you were like, 
okay, they're a makeup brand. They have a prototype. So I got to figure that out. They've got basic like business model stuff to show. And so, you know, you had those like early steps to be like, okay, I need these like four or five proof points, which I think is so important. Yeah, I was very lucky in that I had a huge network of entrepreneurs that I didn't have before. Through working in venture capital, I had hundreds of entrepreneurs that I could call and email and ask for advice, which I did. And I talked to a lot of people before I started Curie and asked them, you know, what did you do in the early days? What were those first six months like? And some of the best advice I got was, like you just said, the prototype idea of like, someone told me, I can't even remember who, but he was like, treat the first six months like a beta test, which is like a common term in tech. A beta test is like, testing a product before you release it to the rest of the world and like collecting feedback and, you know, perfecting it before you officially launch it to the masses. And so those first six months, that's exactly what I did. I, I bootstrapped. So I actually, even though you'd think I would go out and raise venture capital funding, I did not. I just started Curie on $12,000 of my savings, put 11 of those 12,000 into our first production run. I made the bare minimum like order that I could possibly make and figured this is my beta test. I'm going to launch this. I'm going to mostly sell it to family, friends, like, you know, did some Instagram posts about it and just collect feedback and, and figure it out and not be tied to anything. Our first packaging was awful. Like it was so ugly. <laughs> I designed it myself on like Adobe Illustrator and I'm not a designer, but I was like, this is a beta test. Like I'm not going to spend my money on paying a design agency to make this beautiful branding and packaging when I don't even know if our customers are going to want like the product or if they're going to want to change it. Maybe they don't like the scent. Maybe they don't like the texture. Like I knew that we were just going to be those first six months just collecting feedback and then changing the business based on that feedback. And so that was some of the best advice I got was like, treat the first six months like a beta test. Don't pour your money into beautiful, perfect packaging because you're probably going to want to change it. That's amazing advice. I think every entrepreneur needs to hear that. And I'll double down on that. Beta test for six months. That's so good. Or maybe even longer, maybe first year. We did that with the startup that I was at. We did that for the first year. And I think the feedback piece is also the most important stuff. Like there's the not dumping savings into brand and everything, but it's like, you have no idea what people are going to like and not like, and how awful to like go to market with something that is not a great product. You got to set yourself up for success the best you can. And we still do that. I mean, every product that we've launched. So we had, we started with the aluminum free stick deodorant. Then we launched our aluminum free spray deodorant. It's a full body deodorant spray. Then we launched our hands, hydrating hand sanitizer, whipped body wash. And each product that we launch, we call it V1. We're like, this is our V1. Our V1 packaging is never what I want. <laughs> it's our V1 packaging for our spray deodorant was these like crappy bottles with like a label on it. And it was not the most beautiful, but it got the product out there quickly into people's hands. And we collected feedback, listened to what people were saying about it and changed our formula, changed the name of the products, like changed a lot. And same with the clay detox mask, like our V1 packaging wasn't perfect, but let's get it out there. Let's start collecting feedback. And then we can iterate and perfect as we go. So we still kind of have that mentality with new products, with new scents, where we're not scared to like launch something and then cut it if it's not working. 
or change it. Yeah. And also because a lot of the times you're going to have to change multiple things. The packaging's got to change. The scent's got to change. And the texture got to make it a little more thick or whatever. And so it's instead of doing each one for V2, V3, V4, it's like, let's lump all three changes into V2, try it again. And I think that's such a great approach. Yeah. And like with the spray bottles, for example, like we have now we have these like beautiful little screen printed spray bottles. They're made with post-consumer recycled plastic. They're all totally custom. But the scary thing is like you have to print the ingredient list on these bottles. And when you're ordering anything custom, like a custom bottle, the minimums can be like 50,000 bottles. It's a huge investment. It's not cheap. And so thank God we didn't just like right out the gate order these beautiful custom bottles because we ended up changing the formula. We ended up changing the name. It started out as spray deodorant. And then we learned that people were using it on their whole body. So we renamed it full body spray deodorant. And we wouldn't have been able to like make those changes as easily if we had ordered 50,000 bottles immediately. So it's definitely like a great, great way to run, I think, a consumer business, especially where you're getting real-time feedback. Like, don't overcommit on V1. Beta test. Always be beta testing. It's so funny you say that too. To bring it back to Shark Tank, you know, one of the main things that they always say is like, you can't have too much sitting inventory because that's your cash is just tied up. So that's also like a very big Shark Tank thing that hopefully people see too. Like, yeah, you can't move quickly because it's just sitting there and it's kind of outdated now. So just to bring it, you know, full circle to our Shark Tank. One question I do have for you, and this is, I'm sure, something that you're constantly thinking about, but I'd love to hear your thoughts is, how do you think about standing out and being the deodorant and the beauty brand, because you've more than just deodorant, that is actually effective? Because I think for someone like me, I obviously now, like you, have seen you on Shark Tank, I'm going to try it, and you've, you know, got me as a customer at least to try But for people that see all of these competitors, you know, the native, the Schmitz, the whatever, how do you think about being the one that's like actually effective and like standing out? Is it a campaign around aluminum? Is it a campaign around your story? Like what is the thing that you think is going to make you guys stand out? I always tell my team like show, don't tell. Like don't put on our website, the most effective aluminum free deodorant. I'm sure, yeah, we actually probably do say that somewhere, but everybody says that. I'm a big fan of showing instead of telling and the way that we show it, you know, show that we're all about efficacy and show that our product's effective is through our, the influencers we work with, the brands we collaborate with, the, you know, photography, everything. So for example, our deodorant spray, which is our best selling product, it's amazing. Our deodorant spray is in all SoulCycle locker rooms nationwide. And it's available in the locker rooms. SoulCycle does not does not treat that lightly. Like we had to do pilots in multiple studios before we got into their locker rooms. They're really, really strict about what brands they allow into their locker rooms. And so that was like a year process getting into SoulCycle. But now that we have that stamp of approval, like what place is sweatier than SoulCycle? You're sitting on a stationary bike six inches from people next to you and they want their people to smell good. Like they want the room to smell good. They don't want people smelling like BO. So the fact that we got that like soul cycle stamp of approval in like one of the sweatiest studios you can possibly be in is a great example. Of, like we're showing that we work like soul cycle would not have taken us through a six month pilot and brought the product into their locker rooms and they're paying for that product if it didn't actually work. And the influencers we work with, like you don't see us working really that much with like beauty influencers 
because that's not showing our audience. That's not showing our customers the product works. Like the influencers that we work with that you see tagging stories and on Instagram of Curie are fitness instructors, personal trainers, professional athletes. We work with a lot of female athletes because I just think it's about showing that the product works on real people that are in motion, moms that are, you know, chasing after kids postpartum where you're super sweaty. Fitness is, you know, obviously the fitness is the obvious one, but we think beyond that into like, who needs to smell good and doesn't want to have fit stains and BO and then we send them products. So I think it's about showing, not telling and being like, this is, this product's effective. We're in Souls Like, we're actually about to launch in a big fitness chain. Can't announce it yet, but in May, that's also going to be, I think, a huge moment for us and a big stamp of approval. Congratulations. That's so huge. I think also, like you said, not only is it the sweatiest place, but also it has such strong brand recognition that I think it's it's everything. Like, I mean, quite frankly, you could go into an amazing, let's say, a 24-hour fitness or like the local, I don't know, like we have like a spectrum club in my hometown, you know? But that brand name isn't as strong and isn't also as like female-oriented as SoulCycle. That, it's, very, it's a very aspirational brand. So in terms of association, like, you know, if you can be associated with a brand that has that kind of cult following, you know, very kind of feminine, strong brand, like that's also so powerful. And a huge, huge deal. So I cannot wait to hear about the announcement in May. It's exciting. It's another big, really great aspirational brand. So we're really excited to collaborate with them. And we we made a special scent for them. So we made a a special scent that will only be available in their locker rooms. Wow. Well, we may now have to get memberships and, and try it out. I love it. Well, this was so fun. I do have one final question for you. We ask all our guests this. Obviously, so many tips you've shared throughout this conversation, many of which also for entrepreneurs. If you're an entrepreneur, send this to your entrepreneur friends. The question I'm going to ask you is just what is that one piece of advice, entrepreneurs or not, that you would give to all 20-somethings across the world? There's so much, so much. Read my, my Shark Tank blog post full of advice. But I think one of the biggest piece of advice that I think also applies to people who are not necessarily entrepreneurs is, and this is another Shark Tank lesson from all the reflecting I've done, is like knowing your worth. I really encourage people to like know their worth and knowing your worth is not in terms of business and in the workplace. Can sometimes take a little bit of research, like talk to your peers. If you're working at an investment bank and you're not sure if you're being paid less than your peers, like get coffee, get drinks after work, start asking people, be curious and figure out what you're worth, whether it's a business, you know, me going on Shark Tank. That was a big thing that I've gotten a lot of kudos from people in my DMs that they're like, you knew the worth of the business and you did not back down. And I was like, I went in there, they tried to negotiate down with me. And I was like, no, this is what the business is worth. I know what we're worth. I know what our potential is. And I ended up getting exactly what I wanted, but it wasn't just out, something I pulled out of thin air. Like I knew what our worth was because I did the research. I knew what comps were for similar companies. I talked to VCs to understand what a fair valuation was. And so that's, I think, the, a big lesson is like, know your worth, do your research. Like it shouldn't be just based on nothing and fight for it. Don't accept a job that if you think you deserve 
equity in that startup you're about to go hustle and build, like ask for it and know how much you're worth. If you're trying to get a raise or a promotion, like know how much you're worth and don't accept less. I love that advice. That's so good. Know your worth. Another Shark Tank lesson. Another Shark Tank lesson among many. Know your worth. And I think another one, I'll add a little bonus one, is like timing is everything. There's been so many things that have happened to me with my business, with Curie, that have been incredible. Getting on Shark Tank, getting into Nordstrom, launching with QVC. And all of those things like started with a no. I applied for Shark Tank the year prior, got a no, and then applied again and got on. We've tried to get into Nordstrom four times, got no's, and then finally got a yes. So that's another lesson that I've learned over and over again is it's all about timing and being persistent. And turn those no's into yeses. Yes. And a no is not a no forever. Yeah, that's so huge. I think it's so important to hear that. And for you to share too, that like all these things that look incredible on social media that you were able to turn Shark Tank, they started with no's. And like people need to hear that. Like it does not happen on the first yes most of the time. It really requires persistence. It's so true. I'm going to go film a TikTok on that right now. (laughs) I'm just like, it's not. And I think like you tend to, and I used to do this. Like I used to, if someone said no to me, Oh, it, early in the business, it would be like a gut punch. I'd be like, oh, we're like terrible. No one's, we're never going to succeed because XYZ retailers said no to us. And now when someone says no, I'm like, all right, great. And then I follow up in six months or follow up a year later. I don't take no's as like a no forever anymore. And I also just like don't take it personally because sometimes the timing's not right. I love that. But that takes practice. And I think that's also good to hear is that in the beginning, wasn't like that for you. And now it's like, I'm good. I got it. And once you get used to it, you're like, anyone can reject me. I don't care. I'll move on to the next person and come back to you and circle back, you know? Totally. Rejection used to hurt so bad. It was like, it would derail me. If I got to know, especially something I really wanted, it would, you know, ruin my day, sometimes my week. And now it just like rolls right off my shoulder because I'm used to it. So I think it does like take practice and getting rejected. Like as an entrepreneur, you're going to get rejected over and over and over and over again. But I think it's also a lesson for people that are, you know, might be at a job and they they know they should ask for that raise or that promotion, but they're scared. They're going to get a no. What do you have to lose? Like that has helped me a lot in thinking about just going for it, where I think about the worst case scenario. And in most cases, the worst case scenario, like is maybe a little bit of embarrassment or like, you know, oh, like that was like kind of an awkward conversation, but that's really not that big of a downside. So I think it's a great practice for anyone, especially in your 20s, to just get used to getting rejected because getting rejected is part of life. And the sooner you can just like get desensitized to that feeling, the bigger risks you're going to be willing to take because you're not scared anymore. I love that. That's so good. And most people are so concerned about themselves anyway. They're not caring about how embarrassed you are. They're literally just like in that conversation, they are thinking about what they're having for dinner that night. Like they, it's not as big of a deal to them as it is to you. So, well, thank you so much, Sarah. I'd love for you to share with everyone where they can buy Curie when you are back in stock. But by the time this airs, hopefully you will be. And then also where they can follow your journey, especially if they're an entrepreneur, 20-something, and they want to see your lessons and maybe your TikToks. 
Yeah. So you can buy our products at curiebod.com. We will be back in stock end of April, beginning of May with our stick and spray deodorant. Spray deodorant's our best-selling product. It's amazing. Everybody should try it. I use it every day. You can find us on Instagram at curiebod. You can also find us on TikTok at curiebod. And then me personally, Sarah J. Moray on Instagram and TikTok. I'm pretty, I'm most active on TikTok. I love TikTok and I share all types of business advice and strategies and analysis on my personal TikTok. So you can find me there, Sarah J. Moray. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on. What a pleasure. It was so nice to meet you and get to chat today. This is so much fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you everyone for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can... Give us a follow over at Dear 20-something, anywhere you get podcasts.